tuning in to Progressive News Network. It is Sunday, June 28, 2020. I'm your host, Brooke Hines, and well, we got a great show for you tonight. We've got uh, Jen Perlman. Jen Perlman's going to join us at 8 o'clock to talk about her challenge to Debbie Wasserman Schultz in Florida's 23rd Congressional District. We also have Awkward. Mr. Awkward will be here at 7.30. Uh, he's a performing artist uh, in the genre of hip-hop and rap and is a part of the uh, 10 Demands for Justice campaign. And I would like to uh, share some of that information with you guys tonight. So we'll be talking to him at 7.30. We also have, as usual, Janine Moloff with the Justice Report. Tonight she will be talking about the profit motive behind police brutality, and uh, the profit motive is uh, private prisons. I mean, spoiler alert, but I mean, there's more to it. Uh, That's not all. Uh, You've got to listen to what Janine has to say, because it's going to, um, it's going to blow your mind, Uh, because it's always worse than we imagine. Um, But before we start tonight, uh, it is that time of year again. we have to do a fundraiser, and I apologize in advance. I hate fundraisers. Uh, I hate to have to talk about raising money and doing money and all of that sort of thing, but this is super important. Uh, this is the first year that we are doing this fundraiser uh, with, uh, with me at the helm. So usually it's been uh, my esteemed per- executive producer, Rick Spizak, who has done these fundraisers this is the first time that I'm taking over and I'm kind of feeling my way around. So uh, we have to pay the bills to blog talk radio. Um, and really that's all, you know, that's, that's all we're trying to do. We're independent media and we're doing this because we think it's important. We're not doing this to make money. We're not doing this to uh, um, as a grift, as uh, so many people out there uh, have taken to doing. Uh, no, this is just this is just about getting the information out and getting uh, and creating a platform for uh, uh, folks in Florida and around the world to be able to share their ideas. And those ideas are often about uh, progressive politics, but they're also cultural. We've been covering culture now for years, and we continue to do that. Um, So, you know, if you can, just kick in a few bucks. I have put in the show notes a link to to a, a PayPal <clears throat> which will help us offset the cost of paying Blog Talk Radio. Um, just do that if you're so moved. No pressure. Um, and I know everyone is uh, cash-strapped right now because of uh, COVID and the uncertainties looking ahead with regard to all of that sort of thing. So please, 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 please do not do this if you can't afford it, but if you can, we so much appreciate you. Um, On a related note, uh, for those who do uh, kick in a few bucks to the PayPal, you will get a response from Progression Partnership. 
Progression Partnership is my consultancy that has been doing political campaigns now for many years. I've been in marketing for so long, 20 plus years. And, you know, some years ago, almost 10 years ago now, I had the opportunity to switch out of corporate work into um, you know, this, this kind of work that is, uh, that helps people and soothes your soul, I guess you could say. Uh, so very privileged to be able to do that. And I realized as I was setting up this fundraiser, that, you know, I haven't, I, I haven't extended these capabilities out to the PNN audience. So um, I'm doing so now. Uh, Progression Partnership is a uh, kind of like an advertising agency or communications marketing agency specifically for progressive candidates. Now, we really specialize in printed materials, especially direct mail. Uh, we are, my background is in branding for 20-some for years. And uh, so we try to help you soup to nuts, whatever you need, uh, but especially things that have to do with, uh, with branding and with printing. Uh, that is what we really excel at. And one of the things that I like to talk about a lot is we work only with union shops that are fully unionized. So there's a lot of union shops that just buy the union bug or, or only are minimally uh, invested in or, or participate in uh, union work. That is not the case with our vendors. So let's say you do direct mail with Progression Partnership. Your direct mail is not only being printed by union workers, it is um, everyone in the, uh, uh, what used to be called the dark room, everyone who's in digital who works on it, their union. Uh, when you go to the part of the process where direct mail is uh, sorted and inked, those folks are our union and the drivers are union. So it is, it is across the board and that's really important uh, for us, but it's also really important for our clients. Now, we also do a lot of work with small businesses. Uh, so anything you need that has to do with, with your marketing, and design and branding, whether it's signage or printed materials or, uh, you know, digital ads and social media, that type of thing, uh, shoot me a line. I am on Twitter at Nashville underscore Brooke. And if you search under Brooke Hines, B-R-O-O-K, no E-H-I-N as in Nancy E-S, you can DM me. I have open DMs. So just shoot me a DM and, uh, you know, let's talk about your needs as, as a candidate or a small business. Okay. Uh, so much to do tonight. Uh, let's get right to it. Um, I want to tell you guys, I want to tell you guys a little story about COVID and COVID in Florida. Uh, now, I know a lot of people are aware of this, but 
the DeSantis administration, DeSantis is our governor here in Florida, and he's a big Trump buddy. And so he tries to do everything he possibly can to uh, make Papa Trump happy with him. He doesn't do anything, it seems, that would uh, um, overturn that guy's apple cart. And right now, he's between a rock and a hard place. Right now, he's got uh, Donald Trump breathing down his neck to to make it seem like coronavirus infections are on the outs, and they're not. They are actually exploding, especially in Florida. And so he's got his constituency in Florida that's afraid of dying. <laughs> I mean, people are afraid, I mean, literally, of, of catching this and uh, not, not making it through and or uh, racking up huge health insurance, health bills, medical bills. Uh, if you have insurance or if you don't have insurance, you know, it's, it's going to hit you in the pocketbook really, really hard. Uh, and, uh, and the fact that businesses have been closed down and then were reopened too early. You know, that's part of what's causing this, um, this, this new explosion in cases. Uh, we did a phase one opening in early May, and then we did phase two here in central Florida. We did, we did phase two around like May 19th. So it was kind of close to the end of the month. Phase two meant that bars reopened, uh, bars and restaurants. And so the bounce that we're seeing now is largely from bars reopening. So when we got this week, we got some numbers that were just gobsmacking where uh, people, where we saw 9,000 almost 9,000 on uh, Thursday and then uh, over 9,000 on Friday, new cases in Florida, you know, but that doesn't tell the whole story. You know, DeSantis and uh, Trump want, want you to think that that has to do with there being more testing done. And there's an easy way to, to figure out whether that's, has to do with testing and it's called, you know, looking at the percentages of people who are actually infected. So the infection rate, the infection rate uh, in Florida was hanging around like 5%. And I'm being generous there. There were parts of uh, South Florida where you had uh, a little bit higher than that, seven, eight, 9%. But uh, the, the average was right around 5%. What we're seeing now are infection rates that are approaching 20%. So of the people who are getting tested, we're seeing uh, 17 to about 20% um, uh, being, being positive. That is not good news. That is not good news for, for any front. So, You know, if you're on the side of small businesses needing to reopen and and, and what's important to you is economic indicators, then this is very bad news. Because if we had just hunkered down and stayed in place for a little while longer during May and, and June, 
then we could possibly have opened up in August and been fairly safe. But instead, we opened up too early. We've got this big bounce in, um, in infection rates. And so that's setting us back even further. Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's like that, it's like that old study that they did with the kids and the marshmallows, you know, which, which has to do with uh, instant gratification. So instant gratification is something that young children uh, are, are kind of hardwired for, whereby um, if you put a marshmallow in front of them and you leave the room and you say, don't eat that marshmallow, I'll be right back. And when I come back and you don't eat the marshmallow, I'll give you two marshmallows. Well, a good percentage of kids, uh, especially depending on age, will eat the marshmallow because they can't think past that first marshmallow to getting two marshmallows. And, uh, and that seems to be uh, about the uh, cognitive ability of the uh, leadership of the state leadership in Florida. Now, in addition to just being general terrible people, it seems, the, uh, the DeSantis administration um, had a really good person within the Department of Health here in Florida who was their data director, who was keeping track of all of the COVID statistics. Now, she got fired. Her name's Rebecca Jones. She got fired because she was doing too too good of a job. She was actually reporting uh, the news and the numbers in a straightforward manner. And that's, you know, we can't have that when you have the kind of uh, leadership that, that we do in Florida right now. So, um, so she blew the whistle. And now she's saying, there's a story that came out this week, she's saying that there is a, a, a new, a new push within the DeSantis administration to create a bottleneck, a bottleneck in testing so that the end of June going into July 4th, what makes it look like our COVID cases are on the wane. Well, that's not exactly panning out for them, but uh, as a former employee of the Department of Health and someone who uh, still has contacts within that agency, uh, she is reporting out what she's hearing from her former colleagues. And I've got an article here from CBS 12 News in West Palm Beach. Uh, Jones claims, based on conversations and emails she's viewed, there is a plan at the Department the Department of Health to slow down the reporting of new cases next week to create a bottleneck in the appearance that Florida is improving. Uh, Rebecca Jones says, quote, the context that was added by an employee is that they are letting the number of real cases flow this week so that next week they can start to reduce the number of cases and make it look like Florida is on is over the hump. Okay, now that's that's a, I skipped right to the end of uh, of the article there because I think you know she was leading up to all of this. She says, quote that we have hit the worst of it, it's all downhill from here, come to Florida, 
celebrate July 4th weekend or whatever event or beach you want to vacation at and come one, come all. This is very, this is a very serious allegation, though for me at this point, it is not very shocking. And of course, what she's doing there is saying, this is what the DeSantis administration wants you to think. And um, in a series of tweets this, this week, Jones also alleged that Department of Health employees are quietly deleting cases and deaths from data and plan to make it look like Florida is improving. So, you know, kind of backtracking, this is how they're doing it. They're deleting cases and deaths from the data. Now, it didn't work because this week we saw some of the highest numbers we've seen so far. So it makes you wonder, if these numbers that we're seeing this week are numbers that are actually already from cooked books, then honest to God, how bad is, can, can it be? Uh, you know, I live in Central Florida. You know, just just, just to give you a little bit of a, a personal, you know, perspective from from where I sit. I live in Central Florida. I have a messed up immune system. So, you know, I'm not taking any chances. I'm staying home. I don't go to the grocery store. I don't go to people's houses. I don't go, we don't order food from restaurants, you know, forget going to a restaurant or going to a bar. We don't even order food from restaurants. You know, uh, I, I, <laughs> I could do a whole show that is nothing but uh, COVID cooking. <laughs> what to make what to make during during uh during quarantine um you know and we, you know me and my husband were doing this because uh chances are if i get sick i'm going to be one of the people who get really really sick that's that's the way my my immune system works we know one thing about covid and that is that one of the things that uh that puts people in the hospital and makes you really sick is how your immune system is fighting the infection or fighting the virus. And uh, for people with an immune system like mine, what happens is even when it's not COVID, even when it's something easy, like just like a cold or something, uh, my immune system goes into hyperdrive, just absolute, you know, uh, Damn the torpedoes. <laughs> but uh, um, so anyway, that's that's why we're being extra um, careful. That's just a little bit of color for you. Just to wrap this up, Re Rebecca Jones says, what's going on here? Now, this is the specifics. Uh, Governor DeSantis is asking hospitals to only report patients who are getting uh, and, quote, intensive level of care within the ICU and not the total number of ICU beds taken. Now, if you go to the link that I provided in the show notes where it says real Florida COVID stats, that will take you to Rebecca Jones's new dashboard where she's using the, uh, the publicly available uh, uh, public health stats, and she's uncooking the books and 
in that information, you will find a tab that has available ICU beds where she reports out this information correctly. So it's not just who's getting an intensive level of care within an ICU, but the beds taken, because that's, that's what matters to you and your family if you get really sick, is whether there is a bed available. Um, other concerns she raised about the way the state calculates positivity rates include um, that, uh, that the Department of Health divides the number of positive tests by the number of total tests. All right, so uh, those of us who, who are, are, are math impaired uh, ignore that part, but listen to this part. What they're doing is counting a person's positive test once but allowing multiple negative tests for the same person to be counted each time. So <clears throat> what should be important is, is how many people who are alive and walking around are, are infected. And instead of reporting that out, they're just reporting how many tests have, have been done. And, and, and if one person has three negative tests and one positive test, and this positive test is what lands them in the ICU, then they're telling you that there are three negative tests to that one positive test. That is a, that's very dishonest. Um, Jones paints a grim picture of the ongoing data reporting at the Department of Health, and she said she has multiple sources within the department confirming the data manipulation is still ongoing. Uh, so you know we're going to keep a we're going to keep an eye on that. Uh, um, there's a lot to be talked about. You know we've had my colleague from the Florida Squeeze, Parda Krishnayer, on quite a bit to keep us appraised of what's going on in COVID news. He's watching this really closely, and uh, we will have him on again really soon to uh, give a little give a little update. Uh, moving on, moving on. Past couple weeks, I have mentioned the Matt Taibbi uh, controversy with regard to, I guess it's become with regard to cancel culture or something. Uh, I'm a big Matt Taibbi fan. I love the way he writes. I love the, uh, the, uh, I think he's a great writer. I think he's got a lot of rhythm. I think that he's a, a, a fantastic reporter who uh, uh, pays close attention to getting things right. Uh, and you can tell when you watch him in interviews that he's the kind of person who uh, is mortified uh, if, he, if he gets a, gets something wrong, if something doesn't something he publishes should not be borne out in fact-checking. Uh, I have yet to see a Matt Taibbi article that where the fact-checking, where he needed to go back and, and correct something major. Uh, he's, he's a real careful reporter. Now, lately, he's kind of gotten on this, this bandwagon about um, about the potential for silencing voices, reporters, voices in the media, uh, using the lever of um, of kind of pop culture political tendencies, you might say. And so he 
wrote this article about uh, the uh, Twitter ropes Pierre's um, going out and trying to find writers and reporters who deserve canceling or you know what Robespierre did was was uh, cut their heads off um it's not like any of us are cutting anybody's heads off uh yet uh, as far as i know i have no evidence of such uh and i don't expect it now um i think he had a good point you know i think he went a little bit too far and i mentioned that i think what he was doing was he was uh that it was important for him to defend his friend, Lee Fong, who uh, kind of tweeted out some clunkers. And, you know, this, this all goes back to a George Floyd uh, protest that was in um, Oakland, California. And uh, Lee Fong, instead of going uh, for a straight way of reporting this, he reported people who were who were saying, uh, "Well, how come black on black crime is never uh, protested?" You know, like that type of thing, which is a a, a right wing trope. I mean, it's it's just a cliche, and and people called him out for it, and he gave a real health, heartfelt apology. You know, one that I felt was um was uh, quite appropriate you know um so we kind of left that behind and things kind of evolved and then this turned into a nathan j robinson versus a, a crystal ball thing uh by way of glenn greenwald uh let me just go on the record by saying wow that was unnecessary um but moving on matt Taibbi, moments before we uh, came on, just published a piece called On White Fragility, A Few Thoughts on America's Smash Hit Number One Guide to Ed Egghead Racialism. And uh, and he promises in this piece, now I'm on Matt Taibbi's Substack, uh, he promises in this piece that he's writing something this week that will be that will flesh out these ideas a little bit more so looking forward to that i just want to give you guys a taste of what is in this piece right here and he says his lead is a core principle of the academic movement that shot through elite schools in america since the early 90s was the view that individual rights humanism and the democratic process are all stalking horses for white supremacy the concept, as articulated in books like former corporate consultant Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility, Amazon's number one bestseller, reduces everything, even the smallest and most innocent human interactions, to racial power contests. And then skipping down, he says, um, White Fragility has been pitched as an un controversial roadmap for fighting racism at a time when, after the murder of George Floyd, Americans are suddenly and appropriately interested in doing just that, um, fixing things. Except this isn't a straightforward book about examining one's prejudices. Have the people hyping this impressively crazy book actually read it? All right. Okay. This is all right. What's going on here? 
Um, Taibi continues, D'Angelo wasn't the first person to make a buck pushing tricked up pseudo intellectual horseshit as corporate wisdom. And she might be, but she might be the first to do it selling Hitlerian race theory. White fragility has a simple message. There is no such thing as a universal human experience, and we are defined not by our individual personalities or moral choices, but only by our racial category. Holy Christ, he's making some sweeping claims here. And, you know, these are these are our, our value judgments and so on and so forth. Uh, by the way, Nathan Robinson was also making value judgments and Glenn Greenwald went after him for it. But, you know, maybe Glenn Greenwald will like host a thing with Matt Taibbi and they can flush this whole thing out. Um, Matt Taibbi's hanging it out there with this, you guys. You know, I think that I think that his uh, his his lead here. Um, I was in grad school in the early 90s and I was in social theory and it was not my experience. Of course, I was not at an elite school. East Tennessee State University is by no means an elite school. Um, and maybe that's why I escaped the, uh, um, the view that individual rights, humanism, and the democratic process are all just stalking horses for white supremacy. Maybe that's it. Maybe I needed to pay more for my, my education. I can't wait to see the response to this. And I say that as someone who appreciates Matt Taibbi for a long time, love his writing, and I'm just wondering what the heck <laughs> what the heck is going on in the GM groups that these guys are 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 hanging out in? I read White Fragility a while back. It is totally flawed. I totally agree with that. I'm not sure Hitlerian race theory is 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 what I would say, but you know, let's let's stay tuned. Let's see what um what uh how this um how this shakes out and i'm gonna wait for there for y'all right there i've got awkward waiting on the line and i want to play for you a little clip from a a, a song of, of his this is a this is um f trump From a nuclear bomb, I'm about to show up. Got the right to bear arms. If we don't lie tomorrow, I'ma come for them blonde. Tiki torch holding motherfuckers right in your wrongs. Nazis marching on the streets and Nazis in charge. There's even Nazis on these beats and Nazis on the blog. Questioning me, I got the motherfucking scars. And it could have been me who got crushed by that car. American free, it's white man free for all. I'ma tell you the truth, I got that white skin card. I never sat back and said, oh, thank God. Oh, God, I cried looking out my backyard. Should have been there too. Smash Nazis with the cars. And I used to do that, but now my kids are my job. And thanks to my wife, I got the time to spit bars. This will cost my paycheck getting started. Fuck Trump, fuck the system that made him Fuck afraid pundits and the lives who praise him Fuck you white apologists, privilege is amazing I know you won't acknowledge the world you were raised in Fuck Trump, fuck the system that made him Fuck afraid pundits and the lives who praise him Fuck you white apologists, privilege is amazing I know you won't acknowledge the world you were raised in I didn't hang up the weapon, it was just a hiatus Hiatus, have to speak the truth I 
Oh my god, that swing. Hey, Awkward, we got you on the line? Yeah. Now, do I call you Awkward? Yeah. Okay, Awkward, thank you so much for coming on, and I am so psyched to talk to you. Uh, when we first talked about uh, uh, coming on the show, it was before the 10 Demands for Justice. And so uh, we've just, we're, we're set up. We got the perfect thing here to talk about. I am blown away by this. And I wanted to kick it off by, uh, by throwing this question out. Um, we've seen the, the, the grossly inadequate eight to eight can't wait. And then there was a response to that eight to abolish. And so tell me how, 10 demands for justice came out of this moment where where we've got these uh these um multiple multiplying uh, uh programs of of activism and and calls for justice yeah um eight to abolition and uh 10 demands for justice uh the road to abolition are not are more similar than they are dissimilar um eight ended up coming out first, but when we started talking, I was already in the process of working with um, 11 or so other people on the 10 demands, um, and it just so happened, happens that we were, you know, that we finished ours a little bit later. Um, you know, we were really careful to make sure that um, all voices were included. Um, we connected not only with the Black community, but um, you know, and the abolitionist community, but also um, with the indigenous community um, and the Latino community. Um, I've been doing this for about 20 years now. Um, and so someone actually reached out to me in late May um, before uh, I think most of these had even been issued and said, you know, I want to work on this. Um, that individual ended up leaving the group, interestingly enough, but we kind of took it upon ourselves and, you know, worked countless hours on this. Uh, there were a ton of iterations. And like I said, we, you know, reached out to a lot of people for feedback um, and we were able to, uh, to release it uh, last Thursday. Um, and overall the response um, has been great. Uh, Jason Call, um, a Congress uh, or a congressional candidate in Washington has actually adopted it as his platform um, for criminal justice, um, you know, and, you know, there's obviously some questions that we expected, like what with rape and murder, um, you know, how can we not have cops? Uh, what do we do with bad guys? Um, but we believe that we answer all of those questions on the website that's uh, spelled out 10 for justice.com. And that is 10 T E N for F O R justice.com. Yep. Is that correct? Okay. 10 for justice.com. I'll make sure I get that in the show notes so that um, pod listeners can find it easily. Uh, So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10. Defund the police and reallocate resources to impacted communities. I love this. So tell, tell us a little bit about, um, about that and demilitarizing the police because they kind of they kind of seem to go together. Um, those are the first two. Um, we figured that 
um, well, the way that the way that we look at it is that you know de- defunding the police has um, gained a lot of popularity, um, you know, and it's one of those things that you know it's similar to Black Lives Matter in the sense that people pick up on trends and don't necessarily understand them and don't necessarily believe them. Um, but even if they do, are not willing to actually take the initiative to do the work to support these things. Um, and, you know, of course, there are some who, who do. And so for us, defunding was the baseline. It has to start with that. Um, and it's not enough to just take money from police. Um, you have to defund all of the institutions that create this system that, you know, people have been taught over the last, you know, couple hundred years to believe is the only option. Um, we want people to, we want society as a whole to think outside of policing, like the the current um, dynamic of crime and punishment and why incarceration is the only answer. Um, and defunding the police um, is, is the first step, you know, and we don't, you know, realistically believe that this is the kind of thing that happens overnight. So, you know, one of the first things would be to reject any proposed budget expansion. And then on top of that, implement the highest budget cuts. Same with police officer salaries. So over a short period of time, it's all reduced to zero. And with that money, instead of putting it back into something that doesn't make sense, um, we want to give it to the impacted communities to create alternatives to policing and alternatives to incarceration, um, because these are, you know, creations of a society that, you know, date back to, you know, uh, the end of slavery. This is not, um, you know, this is not something that has to be the way it is. People have just been brainwashed into thinking that. Um, and you're right, like this, you know, this certainly goes hand in hand with. Uh, demilitarizing. Um, one of the ways we obviously want to defund the police is to demilitarize them. Um, there's a book called uh, the, the Rise of the Warrior Top by Bradley Balco that goes into great detail about how even police departments in small towns with virtually no crime now have uh, machine guns and tanks. Um, it's because of a ton of laws and acts and grants that have been put in place where any extra military equipment from the Pentagon, from the Justice Department, from the FBI, all goes to police departments, which doesn't make sense. It's unnecessary. And when you have, um, as, you know, a 40 plus percent of police officers who have been found to be uh, abusers of their spouses. And we find that three people are murdered every day by cops in this country. And we know that with broken windows, policing, racial profiling, stop and frisk, that black and brown people are disproportionately um, targeted. And those are the ones filling up the prisons on nonviolent offenses. You add all of that together, you end up with um, a system that, you know, is terrorizing people. So um, by defunding and demilitarizing, we're setting the groundwork for what would have inevitably become full abolition with a new way of um, structuring our society and rethinking what we do with uh, lawbreakers and um, what we do to, um, you know, prevent crime in the first place, not just be reactive, but be proactive. Yeah. And, um, you, you know, it seems like, well, I did a piece last week, and I think this was some uh, 
research that was done by sludge and I'll have to dig that out. But one of the ways that, um, uh, and I'm going to talk about this when I talk to Jen Perlman in a few minutes too. One of the ways that the police have a backdoor into lawmaking is through police foundations. And, mm. you know, that's a way that they can amass money and amass power in a way that uh, is off the books and, you know, can pay for anything. Do you mean like police, you mean like police benevolent associations or, or in addition to that? I believe it's in addition to that. I'm going to have to make okay. sure, though. But but it's also been used to uh, to to buy these military uh, military items. So mm-hmm. I should pull that out. I'll pull that out and link it in the show notes. But it's a fantastic piece, and it shows how, uh, like, um, say for instance, Goldman Sachs and Citibank give enormous amounts of money to. Uh, uh, police foundations to, you know, burnish their re- their relationship with each other. And, you know, mm-hmm. it just goes on and on down the line. And then the police foundations can turn around with that money and support certain people that they like to see uh, in Congress uh, right. rather than other people. You know, so it's this, yeah. it's this really ugly cycle. Yeah, and and that's a really good point. I mean, it it, it these are not isolated, um, you know, phenomenon. They, you know, like over policing is directly related to mass incarceration, which is directly related to, um, you know, uh, profit off of prison. And many people talk about private prisons, and they are certainly a significant problem. There are few corporations that um, actually from the ground up, like build prisons, manage prisons, and so on. But that's not even the half. Um, There are tons of corporations who also give these same politicians money so that these certain politicians can remain in power who profit greatly off of incarceration. So there is absolutely from the beginning been an impetus, um, you know, literally to the point, you know, of the history of uh, creating um, or or turning uh, theft into a felony. Um, This was used specifically to put as many black people post-slavery into prisons and onto chain gangs. And it has continued um, up until today where everything from phone companies to, um, you know, I I mean, it's literally endless to food companies actually profit um, off of prison labor, which they make four cents an hour, that's new slavery, um, to the actual foods and clothes and things that um, incarcerated people consume. So a ton of money is made by corporations um, in state and federal prisons. So this is all about capitalism. And as a result, a lot of people have said, let's just take down capitalism. Um, That's a fabulous idea, but um, we want to start with the things that are directly destroying people's lives in this, you know, very clear way where people are being murdered and people are, you know, being put away for life um, and rotting in, in prison cells for minor offenses. Um, these are things that, you know, simply by decriminalizing, um, you know, uh, black market street things such as uh, the sex trade or the drug trade, 
um, decriminalizing immigration. Um, these are ways that we can drastically reduce the prison population and, um, you know, make the need for police far less significant on the road to abolition. You know, I think a lot of uh, uh, white allies can relate to the war on drugs angle on this. Um, uh, just to give you a little back, bit of background about me, I was in, so I was in college in the late 80s and then grad school in the early 90s. That makes me old. Um <laughs> One of the things that uh, happened to a lot of people that I knew was they got caught with uh, uh, with with acid or, or 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 just pot. But acid would put you away for you know like under the jail, and so you know this this was something that that people started getting and and like. Just to fill on a blank there, that also coincided with like the a, a second great psychedelic culture movement, you know. So there was there was that going on, and then there was this heightened uh, awareness within you know these white you know kids. These are these are privileged kids, you know, that that were you know touring with the dead or whatever, and you know spreading you know, Johnny Appleseed like spreading the the, the gospel of. Um, uh, the psychedelics, and I, I heard uh, Duncan Trussell talking, and I'm looking for who it was he was interviewing, but he was he was interviewing somebody uh, about this very thing, and he made a decent point about you know uh, white allies will uh, have spent years and years. Uh, preaching the gospel about how you know just a little bit of a of a a plant in your pocket can put can put you away, and a little bit of a of a psychedelic can put you under the jail, and you know we've definitely felt the pressure from that. Now I imagine that that is everything you do. That's driving. That's yeah. walking down the street. That's just mm-hmm. you know being alive. Yeah. And, you know, this is a great you know, example of how class um, is directly tied into this, too, because if you are arrested on um, a drug charge and can afford a really good lawyer, you will probably get probation. Um, however, if you are stuck with a public defender who has a million other cases and can't focus on you, you are going to possibly get the max. Um, And because of discretion that has been granted to um, district attorneys and to judges, um, if they happen to have a grudge, if they happen to be racist, which many of them are, um, they can stack charges against you. They can give you the maximum. With three strikes laws, there's a guy who was put in prison for stealing a piece of pizza, you know, and that is criminalizing poverty. It didn't didn't matter what color that that person was he stole a piece of pizza because he was starving you know um and and then also related to drugs you have the discrepancy in rich white drugs versus poor black drugs uh traditionally where you know up until the fair sentencing act of 2010 the uh the penalty for crack was a hundred times greater than the penalty for cocaine um after that it's still 20 times so it's it's actually you know really clear cut 
who they're trying to put away. You know, it's the other, the ones that they don't really believe are uh, an essential part of society. And then, of course, you know, with, for example, the removal of um, prisons as recipients or um, incarcerated people as recipients for Pell Grants, um, you know, in the late 2000s, you couldn't any longer get a higher education in prison um, the way you could before. So it's clear also that it's not really for penitence. It's not really for, um, you know, for rehabilitation. It's trying to get you as far away from them as possible and make as much money off of you as they can in the process. Absolutely. And uh, we've got Janine Moloff coming on at 830 to really uh, uh, pull that idea together, like where that profit motive with the private prison industrial complex and how all that Mm -hmm. kind of fits together. Um, What, what I'm wondering to you of these 10, which which one or two do you feel are 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 the most urgent? I mean, are they all equally urgent, or is there one or two that just really uh, speak to you and, and and are you know really heartfelt for you? Yeah. Um, so I would say that I just want to bring attention at least to number eight because it is <clears throat> one thing that definitely separates us from. Um, aid to abolition. Um, I have great respect and a few of the people who created that. Um, but one thing they left out that we were, you know, certain to include because of what we heard from uh, the tribal nations and the black community was an apology, um, which didn't seem so important to me, um, but it was important to them. And I, as you know, an American Jew, don't understand the gravity of it in the way that people who are personally living with it do. Um, and on top of that, the, the reparations part of it is something that I certainly have always believed in. Um, and I would like to, down the road, add, uh, personally, that is, speaking for myself, I would like to add um, ICE detainees and their families to this because, um, you know, Black Americans were brought here as slaves. Um, and in a lot of ways, their life experience, like the things that they dealt with after slavery, were actually worse. Um, life on the chain gang, for example, was worse for many of them than it was being with their slave owner, which is unbelievable to believe. Um, but that's something that Angela Davis has spoken about. Um, you know, obviously, the Euro- white Europeans came here and raped, murdered, and stole the land from the indigenous people. Um, and today, immigrants are, you know, put in cages. They're sexually assaulted by the guards. Um, they're, you know, removed from their families. And some never leave the, the cell. Others just get deported and have to start all over from the place that they were essentially refugees from. Um, so I believe we owe it to all of these people. Um, and by, you know, spending just a bit less, uh, of the billions and trillions of dollars we spend on, you know, just ob- obtaining more and more ab- absurd weaponry to to fight wars for oil, um, to incarcerate people, to build more and more prisons, and to go, like, have space fantasies through NASA, um, we certainly could afford to give this money uh, to these people in the same way we can afford to cancel student debt and, you know, provide Medicare for all. Um, so I think just because of that one being 
unique to us. I wanted to, to bring light to that. Um, and then I guess number 10 is probably, you know, the, the most important to me. I mean, I really do believe that they're all essential. Um, but I think it's worth noting that things like um, ending strategic counter protest violence um, and in, in, you know, independently investigating police crimes and abuses of power, um, instituting complete law enforcement transparency and accountability, none of these things will be necessary once abolition is in place. So it's really important to, to understand when you're reading these, you know, even number three, eliminate discriminatory policing, prosecution, and sentencing. These are all aspects of these demands or, you know, these are parts of this that need to happen immediately. So when you talk about the urgency stuff, that has to happen right now. The beginning of the defunding has to happen right now because this is the first, these are the first steps in changing the current system. But if you only included these things, you'd basically be doing more reforms that don't work. So these just lay the groundwork for the rest of it, which is, you know, not having police not having prisons, having communities that are, you know, built up in ways where we can take care of ourselves, um, having uh, institutions that are not criminal, that are um, designed for, you know, um, prevention um, and for reparation. So when crimes are committed, uh, people are actually held responsible as a human being, but not dehumanized completely and removed from society, but actually forced to go back into society and make change um, where the systems are designed so that, you know, um, we uh, put people with mental illnesses <clears throat> in situations where they can be treated for those mental illnesses, not let them run wild and where they do not feel safe and they make others not feel safe. Um, these are all things that with the money that happens from defunding, we could put toward um, growing our communities so we can be, you know, safe and healthy. Um, but for me, you know, no more prisons is something I've been saying for 20 years. Um, there's, this is also a long, you know, number 10 is, is, is long and extensive because some of it, happens right away. There's no reason why we should not be able to immediately, I mean, especially in the time of COVID, where prisons are literal, like the literal hotspots uh, for COVID and the way they're being treated is if they get sick, they get put in solitary. Um, otherwise, they're just on top of each other, infecting each other. Um, but out, there's no reason that we shouldn't be, um, you know, freeing the elderly, the disabled, the immunocompromised, all nonviolent offenders, undocumented immigrants who are not criminals at all, clearly. They haven't even broken any law other than just physically being here. Um, criminalized survivors, meaning women who have killed their abusers, for example. Um, and those, the many millions of people who are rotting in jail, some of whom, like Khalif Browder, end up killing themselves who have never even been tried, who've never been convicted, who are just sitting there because they're too poor to, to uh, put up for cash bail. Um, individuals who are in prison because they have politics that we don't agree with and we're framed like Leonard Peltier and Mumia. Banning solitary confinement, which is, you know, something that is clear-cut um, human rights violation. Ending the death penalty, which is something that is pretty much only in the U.S like one or two other um, so-called industrialized nations, uh, decriminalize 
misdemeanor offenses would clear out the jail cells. So there are a ton of things. And, and of course, you know, demilitarizing schools. So instead of having a school to prison pipeline, we have like a school to success pipeline. Instead of putting kids in places where they don't feel safe and they are like hounded and abused by cops with machine guns, they should be free to learn and have equal education. Um, you know, to me, 10 is so expansive and includes so many things that in my mind don't take anything except just doing it. Um, you know, with, of course, the end being full abolition of prison. So it's got a really strong, like, end goal and also a lot of steps we can start taking right away. Well, and uh, carceral punishment in northern European countries is so different from the way that it is in in the United States that it almost would look like ending um, carceral punishment. Uh, you, you don't see, for instance, you don't see uh, uh, the mentally ill having to be institutionalized through the criminal justice system rather than through yeah. a, a, a health system. Um, right. So real quick, I'm going to read through these. We've got one, defund the police and reallocate resources to impacted communities. Two is demilitarize the police. Three is eliminate discriminatory policing, prosecution, and sentencing. Number four, institute complete law enforcement, transparency, and accountability. Number five, independently investigate all police crimes and abuses of power. Number six, install community representation, oversight, and safety measures. Uh, super important, especially here in Central Florida. Yeah. Seven, end strategic counter-protest violence, for God's sakes. Eight, apologize and provide reparations. Nine, end the war on drugs. And ten, end carceral punishment. This is, this is a roadmap, uh, and, and it's, um, it's a long time coming. I found the uh, article that I was quoting from earlier. It's from Truthout. It's uh, mm. Jen Armstrong, published on June 19. It's called Corporations Are Bankrolling U.S. Police Foundations Without Public mm. Oversight. And, yeah. oh, my God, it's a simple, it's a simple short-ish article. But, you know, some of the things that the police are buying through these foundations other than uh, uh, favor in Congress are um, surveillance networks, SWAT equipment, yeah. LRADs, uh, 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 consulting with Palantir uh, for more surveillance, drones. I mean, this is, this is, they're preparing for war with, with our totally. own citizenry. Totally. And, and I believe the war started a long time ago and they just have, um, the means to, you know, be, uh, to, they have the means to have the weaponry to, you know, be in that way far ahead of us. You know, we have the power of the people. Um, and, you know, on that note, I do believe that people are capable of living without police and, you know, without this way of thinking. That's why, you know, the entire 10 demands ends with implement 
a reparative justice model in place of the current system. And we go into greater detail on the website, um, on the how it works page about, you know, what that actually means. Um, and when we talk about community oversight and safety measures, we are putting the power back in the hands of the people and we're making sure that the traditionally marginalized communities have, you know, representation, um, significant representation. And, you know, the idea is not to create community policing. The word policing should be stripped from our vocabulary completely. It's community programs and um, community networking and community services. Um, these are ways that we can build each other up and protect each other because that's what the purpose of this is. And right now, we all are really trying to protect ourselves from the cops. Exactly. Well, and that is a really good place to leave it. Awkward, how can people find you on social media? Uh, social media, it's Awkward Rap, A-W-K-W-O-R-D, uh, R-A-P. And my website is thisisawkward.com, and it's awkward spelled with an O. And how do people find the 10 Demands for Justice? Uh, it's uh, T-E-N-F-O-R-J-U-S-T-I-C-E.com, 10forjustice.com. Uh, we're actually a larger group that goes by 10 Demands. Um, we established ourselves for the purpose of 10 Demands for Justice, but we're looking to expand down the road um, to do 10 Demands for Education, um, 10 Demands for Public Health, 10 Demands for Economic Justice, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so on Twitter, 10 Demands, and um, I, we just created uh, an Instagram page that's also 10 Demands. Uh, so if you, you can also use the hashtag 10 for Justice. Um, there's been thousands of tweets using that hashtag since, since Thursday, probably 5,000 or so at this point. So you can uh, see what the conversation's been like, what the questions have been, and um, how we've responded. Um, and, you know, I, of course, uh, do my best to speak on behalf of the larger group, but I'm, I'm one individual. Um, we're a, you know, multiracial, multiethnic um, group uh, with varying opinions on certain things. Um, so, you know, if I say something to someone in response on Twitter, for example, I'm only representing myself if I'm being obnoxious. Um, the group as a whole is trying its, its very best to, you know, respond in kind. So if people are bad faith actors, we'll probably not waste our time. But for the most part, we want to engage in conversation. Um, that's the purpose of this, uh, to get as many people on board. And the only way to do that is for people to understand. So feel free to ask us questions and check out the website, because I, I do believe we do a decent job of explaining not only what the demands are, but how, can, how they can be implemented. Right on. Well, thank you so much, Awkward, and I hope you will join us again real soon to give us an update on everything going on with this campaign and anything else that happens. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Anytime. Okay, guys, we're going to take a little break, and we'll be back hopefully with Jen Perlman. And uh, until then, enjoy this uh, completely copyright-free vintage test card music.
All right, you guys, we're back. I want to give you a little bit of background into this race. This is uh, Jen Perlman's uh, running, challenging Debbie Wasserman Schultz in Florida's 23rd Congressional District. And uh, she's endorsed by a brand new Congress. You can find her website at jen2020.com. Uh, we're still waiting for her to call in, but I'm going to go ahead and talk a little bit about some of the setup that I wanted to do with Jen, uh, and fingers crossed that she remembers. I'm going to ping her real quick. Uh, you know, a lot of people feel a vested interest in, um, in this particular race. Um, a lot of people have a vested interest in this race because it's Debbie Wasserman Schultz. And if you remember anything from 2016, uh, you know, if you haven't had your memory completely wiped, like, uh, um, uh, uh, like I apparently did just then, uh, <laughs> Then you would remember that Debbie Wasserman Schultz was behind uh, a lot of the tomfoolery having to do with the uh, election in 2016. Now, Debbie Wasserman Schultz has been team Hillary Clinton since the 1990s. Uh, it just so happens that Debbie Wasserman Schultz started in the Florida State House in the state legislature about the time, 1992, when the Clintons, Bill Clinton, uh, came into office uh, at the national level, at the federal level. And I don't know if you remember that. Maybe you weren't alive for that. But that was a very particular time in history. You know, we had just come out of 12 years of Reagan and Bush. And Democrats had the idea, mistaken or not, that that they would never get elected to anything ever again and 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 god willing if they were to get elected to anything ever again that what it would take is to being uh more republican than the republicans and and that is part of what you saw as the race uh, in 1992, the primary race that uh, Bill Clinton ran, that's kind of what you saw. And that's kind of what you, how you saw that, that campaign um, shake out. Now, my understanding of who Debbie Wasserman Schultz is from her time in the Florida State House is that uh, she was one of a small group of Democrats who amassed a tremendous amount of power because uh, Democrats in the uh, had uh, did not have the state ledge; uh, they had lost power. And so, in order to get anything passed, you had to partner with the Republicans. And so, they found a group of eclectic Republicans. You might call them the, uh, moderates, uh, who they were able to work with, especially in the Senate later when she was in the Senate in the late nineties, um, in the state Senate in the late nineties, uh, they were able to work with these Republicans and trade power through the Republicans, giving them things 
that Democrats would like to see and calling it a, a, a trade-off that had to happen. Um, and that's kind of how she, she, she made her way. That's also very Clintonian. And that's also how we see the way that uh, she continues to uh, uh to work in the Congress to this day. Debbie Wasserman Schultz has been in the U.S. Congress for 15 years. Before that, she's uh, 1989 to 1992 as staff for Peter Deutsch, then 92 to 2000. She was the Florida State Rep for the 32nd House District in Florida. And then um, 2000 to 2004, she was in the State Senate. And I think we have Jen on the line now. So let's bring Hi. her in. Hey there. Welcome. I'm so glad to uh, be able to talk to you today. Hi. I'm so sorry I was a few minutes late. I have technical difficulties. I'm okay now. Oh, good, good. It happens sometimes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, so I thought I would, talk, I would kick off talking about uh, contrasts. And so I, I gave listeners a little bit of background about Debbie Wasserman Schultz and where she came from and, and kind of what her, her, who she was in coming up through uh, the Florida state ledge. Um, and, and mostly in that she built power by partnering with Republicans. And, you know, this is, this is the, this is the approach that I think people got real fatigued with during the Obama administration towards the end, was that we felt like our issues were being horse traded away. And so uh, as somebody who comes along to challenge Debbie Wasserman Schultz, not only are people excited about uh, the, the, the potential for, um, you know, moving her into, you know, another line of work for a while. <laughs> um, but well, we're also Yeah. We're also a little excited about, hey, you know, maybe we could actually get a a a, a new member of Congress who would be doing the work for us. And uh, a brand new Congress agrees, so they've endorsed you. So um why don't you tell everybody a little bit about how you think about your contrast with Debbie Wasserman Schultz? Uh, really, we are, it's interesting because if you saw us on paper, we're probably not that different, right? Like we share a lot of the same demographics. She's only five years older than me. We both are Jewish women that live in South Broward. We're probably, we're not even one degree removed from each other. We have very similar, like we would seem similar on paper demographically, and yet we couldn't be more different. Um, Basically, on every single issue, the, the difference on the grander scale is that she is okay with corporatism. She is okay with certain industries in our government, whether it's healthcare, public education, or corrections. She's okay with those being for-profit industries. So even regardless of her personally taking corporate money, which she does, and we don't, I take no corporate money, she just doesn't have a problem in general with certain things being for-profit industries, whereas my entire platform is on the premise of certain industries shall not be for-profit and that the wealth and equality gap must be dealt with. And that really sets up my entire platform. You know what I mean? And so she doesn't agree with any of that. And the reality is, with the exception of being pro-choice, she really is kind of a Republican. 
That is exactly what I was the uh, the the what I was formulating as I was digging into this history, and as I really wanted to understand who she was and where she came from beyond uh, what happened in 2016. And I think what you're describing is what some people call neoliberalism, where where uh, yeah, where where the idea is. If there's uh, public transportation, well, it has to make a profit. Or, you know, if there's uh, public utilities or public involvement in utilities, and that has to be profitable. And that's not the way the rest of the world looks at it. And healthcare, no. the, the, the rest of the world does not look at healthcare in terms of a profit. So, uh, you know, it almost seems like to us within the progressive movement, it almost seems like. Uh, like you don't have to explain that sort of thing. It almost seems like, you know, this you is something that we all take to. for granted. <laughs> no, but, you shouldn't have to. And I'll tell you what, it's infinitely more frustrating to me when I have to explain it to Democrats than explaining it to Republicans. When mm-hmm. I have to explain to a Democrat that health care is a human right, it's, it is infinitely more irritating to me than having a debate about that with someone who is wearing a MAGA hat, for example. Right? It's sort of like, I prefer my wolves just dressed like wolves. Right. Right. Um, with Republicans, now I've, I've had this, I've had this conversation with, with Republicans in the past and what you get a lot is, is a, a shock that uh, everything has to make a profit. How could it not make a profit? And then with with Democrats who've bought into this neoliberal, this this corporatism, you get what I feel is is a more emotional response. Because I think what's happening is we are we're calling them on their game. We're we're saying, hey, look, we see you, and we don't want you to get away with this anymore. Because in our eyes, it's a form of stealing. Yeah, it is. Stealing. So what? The Democrats just do it, they just do it in a different way. You know what I mean? They do it with politically correct smiles on their faces, and they, their way, it is very emotional with them. Democrats vote for people that they feel good about. Like they, what bothers them the most about Trump is how he makes them feel. It's that they don't like how he talks. They don't like that he's nasty. They don't like his mean tweets. They don't, he's kind of repugnant, you know what I mean? So they, that really bothers him. But they never cared about a lot of those same policies when they were happening under Obama. Right. So they're much more concerned with how they feel, whereas Republicans, these are our policies. This is what we're implementing. This is what we're doing. And the Democrats just can't get past their own emotional side. They just can't. And that's why they they're having problems on a national level. And we saw in this last week's uh, primaries, we're we're really starting to see the tide change and a lot more progressive folks <clears throat> win their races and i think that the time is is right right now for you uh to to uh um uh not quite ride the wave but but you know bring that attention down to florida because you know, we get we get left out of the conversation so often. Like everybody wants a piece of Florida in the 
presidential race because we're, we're somewhat of a swing state. But when it comes to our members of Congress and our congressional races, we honestly don't get enough attention. Well, we don't. We tend to be very, very um, either Dixie Democrat or kind of that Biden blue, which is not the same level of inspiring in terms of like movement, right? Like it's just not. It's a lot more of the elder population, um, and it's just not as motivating. It's not fiery, you know. It's just not. We don't have that, and I think that that is part of it. But I honestly, since BNC picked me up, um, oh, when was that? Like in September when I first went on with BNC, um, I was very pleased that I was one of the later elections because as their primaries have been happening, we have been poaching all of their exiting volunteers and building up this massive army and not to mention that all the attention will at some point be here. So I kind of don't mind being so late. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, I think it's a great advantage to being late when we've got all of this stuff happening around us and we're on a we're on a long count calendar with our Florida um uh, uh primary election. So it does give us the opportunity to pick up some of those folks who have uh won their races or moved on from from races and want to continue on in the cycle. And that is fantastic news. Um yeah. one of the things that turned up in my in my research on on Debbie Wasserman Schultz was uh her work with the police unions and and taking money uh, you know, forming these these uh, uh, relationships uh, early on, where um, so the so police unions were with Jeb Bush, and they were pushing these unfunded mandates in in Florida, and one of them was was the uh, police pension, uh, which in '98 uh, uh, they were uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz was leading this deal cutting with the Republicans on uh, on the police pension, which nearly bankrupted the state. At the same time, you know, pushing back on tort reform. Wait, that which, was in 98 when she was in the state house? That's what you're talking about? Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. And, That's and, me. That's good. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, and we can talk some offline. I, I spent three hours with a really good friend of mine uh, go, who is a uh, uh, knows every single ins and outs of all of these histories. Another little thing that he that he uh, mentioned that was uh, I, I thought very interesting was remember when we did the ballot initiative on class size, classroom size, and yeah, everyone voted, you know, and and, and it went through. Well, that very next uh, uh, cycle in the state ledge. Uh, the uh, trial lawyers were going through and they were, they were wanting to launch from that win, you know, like we already won class size reduction. So let's move on from there into pushing back on vouchers. And uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz said, Oh no, 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 no. We can't do that until we poll, until we poll classroom size. And everyone in the room, you know, this is all this, the, the um, you know, the state ledge people, all the people in the room were like, you just did a poll and it's called the ballot initiative and you won. So, but, she, but, but what she was doing was she was thinking, she was saying, you know, I'm going to veto that and I'm not going to get behind it. And it, it broke up the, um, 
the, the coalition for it. That's interesting because you know she gets the endorsement from the teachers union. Which is insane. They don't even talk to me. They don't even talk to me. That is just insane. Well, and you know, I'll tell you another thing too about you know the way that the way that these things work in Florida, especially, is that once there is a relationship that has been built with uh, with certain members of Congress who are incumbents, people are loath to. Uh, to change those relationships around. And that's why it's so important to have organizations like Brand New Congress and uh, like our Rev and PDA or uh, Progressive Democrats of America, so on and so forth. Uh, It's really important to have those organizations who can uh, be outside of that bubble. You know, because it, the, the unions in Florida are going to stick with, with incumbents. It's just kind of how they do business. Yeah, they, they're, you know, I've been learning through this process, and it doesn't surprise me. I knew a little bit beforehand how it worked. But, you know, the, the unions are not necessarily really concerned with what's in the best interest of their rank and file. And it, it, it's not, it doesn't even at this point seem to even be part of their equation because I've had several local unions tell me that they would love to endorse me, but they can't. And it's based on the relationship of the head of the AFL-CIO here in Broward and Debbie. So it's like they don't even talk to anybody else. I can't even get them to return my call. They won't even offer me an interview. They won't let me meet their members. Like they just totally, you know, you get the blackout. Mm-hmm. And even that though I'm did- infinitely better for labor. Mhm. Mhm. I've seen this play out so many times, uh, and it's 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 imminently frustrating. And it's part of the reason why we can't get better things done for the constituencies in Florida. You know, the the union leadership is not uh, seeing after the interests of of their membership, and members know. No. no. No, and I actually, it's funny, I had a conversation with my cousin who's a member of the teachers union in Broward, and when I told her how this process works and how I don't even really get a chance to address them, they don't even get to hear, like nothing, she was furious. Like most people, most people that are union members don't realize that. They don't realize that they're not even being given an option and they're not being educated, and it's kind of sad. Oh yeah, absolutely. Now, yeah, they'll they'll uh, they'll do education on these broad subjects that you know that that feed into specific campaigns that they want people to focus on. But when it comes to actual empowerment for people, it's uh, yeah. it's something that that doesn't get done. Well, so give me your yeah. pitch. Give me your give me your pitch to. Uh, um, let's try to get progressives who are uh, who are coming off of other campaigns. Let's get some people to, to, to work for Jim Perlman. What's your pitch? So we are, you know, as we've been talking about, trying to unseat a very deeply rooted corporate incumbent and try to untangle ourselves from the oligarchy down here in Florida's 23rd. So my background is that I'm a second-generation native to South Florida. I grew up here, and I was gone for a while for school, and I've been back since 2003. Um, I'm raising my kids in another part of the district from where I was born. Um, But, you know, I'm an attorney, I'm a mom, and I'm an advocate. And 
There are just so many things that are wrong with what we're doing, and it's all based on this premise of sort of just complete corporate greed. And so I, I realized I had this epiphany a few years ago that none of these policies are worth discussing if we don't get the money out because then we're not even having a reasonable discussion. And so that's the primary focus. And our campaign has been saying the whole time that we believe it's a term of service. It's not a career. It was never meant to be a career. The fact that this is the only job that my incumbent has ever had is, as a politician is absurd to me. That shouldn't even be a job title. And um, so really we're just about – bringing in the new ideas and encouraging young people. I, want, I love the idea. I have so many young teens and college students on my campaign, and it's the best thing ever to work with them and, and mentor them and bring in that new sort of generation. And people like my incumbent and people that are just sitting there, people like the House leadership, old and out of touch and just so not capable of representing regular people now. They're just not. And so it's just really time for a brand-new Congress, and that's really what we're about. And, and, you know, there's a lot of specific policies. Yes, I support Medicare for All. I support a Green New Deal. I support legalization of marijuana. I support ending regime change wars. Basically your typical progressive platform, pretty much. Um, Mm -hmm. But really just I feel like we're on a much bigger mission than that. You know what I mean? We're really on a mission to sort of bring back some sort of democratic republic uh, that we just don't have right now. And, and it's really, it's just, um, it's going to be harder and harder to do it. So it's, I feel like we're chipping away at it and we're, we're making some progress. I couldn't agree more. And that is, I, I, I think that that is what we are seeing all across the board with the, with the protests right now, with, a, with the environmental movement, with, a, with Medicare for All. What we are doing is, is fighting for uh, fighting for the premise that democracy can actually happen, can actually flourish, you know, because we are yeah. really to a tipping point on this. And you're at the tip of the spear in South Florida because you've got sea level rise. You've got the way that uh, the uh, environmental is impacting you in South Florida. We're all aware of, you know, how Miami beach floods and South Florida floods at King Tide but what a lot of people don't understand is that you're also dealing with toxic algae uh, on the waterways from from big yeah. sugar and the red tide on the uh, on the ocean side. So tell our our yeah. listeners a little bit about that for you know folks who are who aren't from Florida. Okay, so. Florida is basically everything. There's a big lake in the middle of Florida called Lake Okeechobee. And Lake Okeechobee, everything south of Lake Okeechobee at one point, everything south of it was like waterways, marsh, inland, Everglades. Everything south of it was Everglades. And we built up land into the swamp and drained through canals. So we have this kind of man-made system where a swamp is supposed to naturally be. All right? So everything is based on that premise. And so we have, on the one hand, we have a lot of industrial agriculture that is sitting now at the south end of Lake Okeechobee. That is where the water is supposed to naturally filter. That's what the Everglades is. It's a giant water filtration system. So right now we have industrial agriculture, particularly big sugar, that are blocking that from the location of where they have their, um, where their operations are. And in addition, the, the waste and the byproducts of their um, processing 
causes these nitrate blooms in the water, which is this blue-green algae. Now, blue-green algae is somewhat naturally occurring, but on a more normal, regular cycle, right? So this nitrate blooms exacerbate this algae problem to the point where it's so toxic, killing things like manatees and other critters because they can't find food in the water that's been poisoned by the algae. So it's a chain of ecological events. It's a train wreck. And the red tide is very similar, but that's the um, – the ocean waters, it is also a naturally occurring um, event. We occasionally have red tides. It's sort of nature's way of cleaning certain things out. But they, should, they have never been as much and as long and as just sort of like this prolonged siege on our waters as they've been um, in the past few years. All right, Jen. We are running out of time, and I want to make sure that uh, that everyone knows how to get in touch with your campaign and volunteer and donate and all of that good stuff. So how do we do that? Okay. So everyone can go to gen2020.com and sign up to Phone Bank. We definitely need phone bankers. That's basically the source of everything right now since we're, our canvassing is still somewhat limited due to COVID. We need everybody to follow us on social media. We are at GenFL23 on Instagram and um, Twitter. And like, share. Every time that people like and comment, it just helps us get more and more traction. So um, really, those are the, the – and if anybody out there is on Facebook, we're Gen2020 on Facebook. Okay. Um, Jen, let's talk again. Let's have a day to talk again real soon. Uh, before, like, like maybe like around the time that uh, um, vote by mail ballots drop, uh, sure, or thereafter, and uh, let's keep in touch because I I, I want to keep an eye on this. I want to make sure that we're pushing as many as we possibly can to help you. And thank you I so much it. for joining us I tonight. Thank you. Thank you All so right. much for having me on. I appreciate it. Have a good one. Anytime. You too. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. So we've got, uh, wow, that was an amazing conversation. We've got uh, coming up right now, we've got uh, the Justice Report. Oh, my God. It's going to be a hot one. With Janine Mala, how you doing? I'm fine, Brooke. How are you Great. doing? Good, I hope. Okay. I'm pretty good. I'm, I'm being good. silly with my music. Okay. I understand. I'm just going to get straight into it. I'm going to discuss basically the intersectionality of police brutality, prison slave labor, and Wall Street predatory capitalism. During the mass protests following the extrajudicial murder of George Floyd, among many others, there have been calls to defund the police which have been met by conservatives and some Democrats with derision and mockery. The Trump Brigade is predictable, backing the police state all the way, especially when the black community rises up against the constant racism that pervades every aspect of our nation. That being said, prominent Democrats have also come out against the defund the police movement, including Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi at the federal level, and here in St. Louis, St. Louis Mayor Lyda Crewson at the local level. Now, Lyda Crewson claims to be a Democrat and a liberal, yet she's proven to be a strong police state proponent. Now, in all fairness, in terms of her background, in 1995, her husband was murdered in an attempted carjacking. 
uh, by a black man, I believe, in front of her house. So she has sustained some serious grief. Now, it's been suggested that her grief influences her vision of the black community and renders her unable to govern fairly, though, again, that grief doesn't doesn't, uh, excuse her behavior. Now, what she's done recently, she doxed some Black Lives Matter and defund police advocates on Facebook Live. And she gave their addresses, their names, phone number, you name it. And this was as she attempted to defend her pro-police stance because she's against defunding the police. Now, the story made national news and was even reported by Newsweek and the national NBC affiliates. Now, Cruzan lives in a very tony part of town known as the Central West End. Perhaps she needs a lesson on the intersection of police brutality, prison slave labor requiring a constant influx of prisoners, and what I call predatory capitalism. Our nation was built on the illegal and immoral enslavement of blacks. It continues to enslave communities of color legally via a loophole in the 13th Amendment. Even Ava DuVernay did a documentary on that. Now, Wall Street benefits from this prison slave labor as well as our government, but they require a strong police presence to keep slave populations high and Wall Street profits up. So now I'll explain the intersectionality of police brutality, prison slave labor, and the prison, what I call the prison industrial complex that benefits the very wealthy and white populations of our country. Uh, by the way, I hope Light is listening. Now Al Jazeera did an article titled Slavery in the U.S. Prison System by David Love and V.J. Das, and this was in 2017. And to quote them, they said, quote, if you want to find an example of modern-day slavery, look no further than U.S. prisons, end quote. Now, this was in 2017, so the writers were talking about how at that point they were at the one-year anniversary since the um, largest prison labor strike in U.S. history. Uh, Now, there were, before that, 24,000 prisoners in 29 prisons in 12 states in 2017 protested against inhumane conditions. And they timed it in 2017, right around the anniversary of the Attica prison uprising. And that was a prisoner strike that in 2017 was already 46 years old. Now, this violent uprising originated from prisoners. And what they were rebelling against were overcrowding, unsanitary conditions, medical neglect, and abuse. And it sounds a lot like the way we treat undocumented migrants as well. Incarcerated workers organized a committee. They launched a strike against many things, but primarily against what I call the New American Slavery 2.0. In fact, the, from, the strike was led by the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee in 2017. And they wanted to draw attention to the fact that prisoner abuse is rampant, and it is modern-day slavery. Um, and they point out that Tenth Amendment, which we've been taught in school, outlaws slavery. It does and it doesn't. It actually didn't outlaw all slavery. Okay? It outlawed slavery except in the instance of lawful incarceration. And this slavery, this slave labor exists in the public and private prison systems and multinational corporations are the new slave masters and the beneficiaries. And basically what I'm saying is all the donations by corporate to albeit well-deserving groups such as the United Negro College Fund 
isn't going to wipe off the foul stench of slavery as, as Wall Street benefits from prison or slave labor. Now, if you look at the history of this, there's nothing new, okay? After the beginning of, after slavery ended, all right, this is really the new Jim Crow, and it's via the prison industrial complex. It's morphed into corporate slavery 2.0, as I said, and the corporate world collectively shouts, Bill of Rights be damned. And the new slavery began in this century with corporate lobbyists. Surprise, surprise. Uh, basically, corporate lobbyists went to Congress and they pushed in the 70s and they helped enact what's called the Prison Industry Enhancement Certification Program in 1979. Now, this act allows U.S. corporations to use forced prison slave labor. And, it, and again, when you force somebody to work, and they're not really paid, or they're paid basically pennies on a dollar, and they don't have a choice in it, that's slavery. Now, this also coincided with an increase in the prison prop population. So this is a win-win for corporate. And when people start blaming China for the exodus of manufacturing jobs, that's only partially correct. They need to look to basically the prison industrial complex here in the United States. Now, participating corporations, and again, this Al Jazeera article was written in 2017. As of 2017, participating corporations, government revenues, private contractors, they all profited. And this was, it basically formed what's called Unicor, and that's the federal prison industries. And basically, it's slave labor for your local Walmart and others, just so you can have those rock bottom prices. Unicor pays inmates in federal, you know, public prisons, $1 an hour. Uh, while the economist.com reported that Unicor saw $500 million in sales for 2016 alone. Now, California, their slave labor, labor program as of 2017 produced $232 million in sales, also reported in the economist. Slave labor in prisons, basically the demographic is disproportionately African-American and Latina. And this is in part resulting from multiple racist criminal justice policies and the inordinate number level of draconian sentencing that's been imposed on communities of color, and that was reported by Al Jazeera. African Americans or blacks are incarcerated five times more than whites. Now, the sentencing project is, again, reported that here's a really scary statistic. One in every 14 or 15 African American men, quote, are incarcerated and in, in states like Virginia and Oklahoma. Now, corporate greed and disdain for justice plus racism has created the perfect storm to grow the new slavery 2.0. The prison demographic nationwide skews definitely to communities of color, especially the black community, and our courts and police have become the renewed slave catchers. And corporate America, including Wall Street, benefits. So let's look at the history of the 13th Amendment. Now, here's the thing. Yes, slavery was abolished with the 13th Amendment, but you have to understand the context and how corporations have worked to replace it with this de facto slavery. Once again, as I said, the 13th Amendment does prohibit slavery and what they call involuntary servitude, but there's a loophole, an exception. And the loophole is except for, quote, punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, end quote. And that's what made prison labor possible. Um, and it started with the convict leasing system. 
this was right after the Civil War, so you see slavery never really ended. Southern economy was just devastated. Slaves had been emancipated, and the Hampton Institution explained that convicts, most often black, didn't just work as road crews or farmhands when they were leased out. They worked as slaves to the railroads and coal mines, and each state leased out programs for slave labor. There was a convict lease system, and it was, they, they invented it. And entrepreneurs, you can call them that, quote, bought and sold these leases. Digitalhistory.uh.edu reported that this new system was possibly cheaper than slavery. There really wasn't much investment. Now, examples of this new cheaper slavery, uh, in 1883, convict leasing uh, provided Alabama with 10% of its revenue, 73% in 1898. Now, here's the thing. The death rates of leased convicts, leased slaves, were reported to be 10 times higher than prisoners from slaves not leasing convict slave labor. There were secret graveyards for the bodies of these slaves after they'd been either beaten or otherwise tortured to death. Yet no screaming about the Eighth Amendment. The convict lease system needed to become politically viable. So now they created the black codes. The black community was recriminalized for what are petty offenses right after this so-called emancipation. And the black codes criminalized non-criminal offenses such as vagrancy, uh, often blacks were swept up and jailed for loitering. Fast forward to the present day, prison slave labor is a billion-dollar industry, and corporate beneficiaries have in the past included some very well-known brands such as Walmart and McDonald's. Now, keep in mind, McDonald's employs a lot of young black men. The uniforms made by those young black workers at McDonald's were made by prison slave labor. NBC News reported that Unicorn managed some 83 factories in 2017 with over 12,000 prison slave laborers, so slave workers. They often earn wages as low as 23 cents an hour. Some work in call centers, others manufacture military body armor, including, ironically, that used by the police. The irony isn't lost here. Slave labor through Unicorn has made defective combat helmets, according to military.com. The New York Times reported that federal prison slave labor made military uniforms worth some $100 million in 2013. Wired.com reported in 2011 that Unicar provided prison slave labor to produce parts for Patriot missiles and other parts for the following defense contractors, Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, Boeing, and General Dynamics. Other corporations profiting from prison slave labor include Starbucks, as reported by Bloomberg in 2017, AT&T is reported by the New York Times in 2000. Target, or Target, ironically, who Oprah, man, uh, Oprah uh, markets a lot of her products through Target, as reported by the New York Times in 2000, and Nordstrom, as reported by the New York Times in 1993. Now, some critics, excuse me, have said comparing this to a slave, the prison system to a slave labor camp is, is really unfair. I'd say it's very fair. Now, the Trump administration further reversed some Obama-era phase-out of private prisons. And now Trump, Trump administration is pushing new policies to increase arrest rates. And that's going to profit Trump's corporate donors and possibly Trump himself. And this is these long-order policies. But again, this is a system that needs constant influx of prisoners to maintain enough slave workers. 
So basically, it's been over 150 years since slavery was allegedly ended, but it persists, and it's the sin of our nation, and it is outrageous. Race, criminal justice, and predatory capitalism have formed an alliance to continue the sins of our predecessors and all for profit, and yes, the race and racism. Um, so this, again, the writers of this Al Jazeera article, VJ Das is a Washington-based essayist and policy advocate running on social, economic, and criminal justice issues. And David Love is a Philadelphia-based freelance journalist and commentator. He's also an adjunct instructor at the Rutgers University School of Communication and Information. Now we have some, some work by globalresearch.com, which is a, um, a publication under Professor Michael Shuzadovsky. Um, and this was this one article was actually printed, uh, published in 2008, but in 2020, Shisadovsky noted that things have gotten much worse. And it was written by Vicky Palaise and El Dario La Prensa, and it's titled The Prison Industry in the United States, Big Business or a New Farm of Slavery. Once again, African-Americans and Latinos are routinely arbitrarily arrested and incarcerated and Sometimes they're put in our profit-driven private prisons. Um, you know, once again, this has gotten out of hand. In 2018, the Department of, of um, Homeland Security received $3 billion for what they call custody operations, as reported by AmericanProgress.org. And 75% of the detention facilities for DHS contracts are privately owned and operated. And we've talked about this before. So it has increased. Um, once again, this is about exploitation. The USA incarcerates more of its people than any other nation, even China, with all its human rights abuses. Uh, the fact is, U.S. statistics show the United States uh, basically has 25% of the world's prison population, even though we only constitute 5% of the entire world population. And so what is going on here? Well, there was a study by the Progressive Labor Party um, which compared the prison industry in the USA to the slavery practiced by Nazi Germany, and I would say rightfully so. To quote the study, quote, the private contracting of prisoners for work fosters incentives to lock people up. Prisons depend on this income. Corporate stockholders who make money off prisoners' work lobby for longer sentences in order to expand their workforce. The system feeds itself, end quote. Um, and this progressive labor party does accuse the prison industry of being, quote, an imitation of Nazi Germany with respect to forced slave labor and concentration camps, end quote. The prison industrial complex has Wall Street roots and investors. Um, this industry has its own trade exhibitions, conventions, website, mail order internet catalog, direct advertising campaigns. And it involves architecture companies, construction, investment houses on Wall Street, plumbing supply, food supply, armed security. It goes on and on. Crime, even though crime, violent crime has actually decreased, the jail population increases. And this was reported by various human rights organizations and the factors that increase the profit potential. You know, they jail people for nonviolent offenses and they give them long sentences for drug offenses, no matter how small the amount. Um, persons jailed for non committing nonviolent crimes um, basically it's, it's gotten out of hand. The federal law 
said five years imprisonment without possibility of parole for possession, for instance, and this was as of 2008, of five grams of crack or 3.5 ounces of heroin. And we know that there's a discrepancy there because more affluent whites will buy the heroin and they get not as, they get basically a lesser sentence than blacks who, through not having as much money, buy crack cocaine. Um, we also have the three strikes laws, which demand life sentences uh, if you're convicted of three felonies, even nonviolent ones. And it, this three strikes law, it passed in 2008, it already passed in 13 states. And it, it basically necessitated the building of 20 new federal prisons. You know, this is where you see maybe a, a juvenile that was given a life sentence by a St. Louis judge. Um, minimum minimum sentencing laws disregard any circumstances. And again, it's about the for-profit move, motive. More prisoners equals more profit for corporate and more motive to incarcerate. And it has its roots in slavery. Okay, There's no guesswork here. There's so much information, it's not funny. And, you know, you'll see basically uh, more fluent people saying, yes, but blacks have been elevated. I mean, we had a black president, right? And my response is, well, while some affluent blacks are being admitted to, for instance, previously segregated country clubs, the majority are still being persecuted and enslaved. Um, and who's investing? The investors pushing the demand for slave labor. At least 37 states have legalized contracting prison labor by private corporations. The list of companies, and this again, as of 2008, is basically the following. It includes following, but not limited to it. IBM, Boeing, Motorola. Microsoft, AT&T Wireless, Texas Instruments, Dell, Compact, Honeywell, Hewlett-Packard, Nortel, Lucent Technology, 3M Company, Intel, Northern Telecom, TWA, well, it's no longer TWA. Okay, so strike that one. Nordstrom's, Revlon, Macy's, Pierre Cardin, Parget, and many more. And this is inmates in state penitentiaries do sometimes receive the minimum wage for their work, but not in all. In Colorado, they get $2 an hour. Um, but in privately run prisons, they receive as little as 17 cents an hour for a maximum of six hours a day. And that's basically $20 a month. Um, prison slave labor has made U.S. corporations competitive with third world labor markets that also use slave labor and child labor to our shame. Uh, there's, for instance, a Texas factory that fired fired workers in exchange for slave prison labor. Uh, this was the, um, basically this factory fired 150 of their workers, and then they contracted with a private Lockhart Texas prison. They make circuit boards that are assembled for companies like IBM and Compaq. A former state rep ordered Nike the perk of prison slave labor to leave Indonesia. Former Oregon, in 2008, once again, former Oregon State Rep Kevin Mannix. Um, and to quote him, he said, quote, there won't be any transportation costs for offering you competitive prison labor here, end quote. Private prisons, they are the sins of Reagan, Bush Sr., and yes, Bill Clinton. The private, excuse me, the prison privatization boom began in the 80s under Ronald Reagan and Bush Sr., but it reached its apex in the 90s under Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton cut federal jobs and pushed private pe private prison corp corporations to, I'm sorry, Bill Clinton cut federal jobs and pushed corporations to use private prisons 
use undocumented migrants in prison slave labor. Slave labor. Um, and about 18 corporations uh, operate in 27 states. They guard 10,000 prisoners. The two largest in 2008, when this was written, was CCA, Correctional Corporation America, and Wackenhut, which is no longer called that. Um, we don't have money for our private prison, for our public schools, but we have money for private prisons that use forced slave labor. And that is, to, again, to our shame. Once again, the Atlantic Monthly in 1998 documented which investors backed what uh, was also called an inmate importation business. And this is where they import inmates with long sentences um, to other counties to basically do slave labor. And the program was backed by investors from uh, Merrill Lynch at the time in 98, Sherrison Lehman and American Express and Allstate. Now, we go on further, and, you know, once again, this is big business. There is no no excusing it at all. And it coincides with just the lack of jobs. You know, again, people blame China, but we're losing as many jobs to this new slave labor. You can't compete against it. So in conclusion, you know, we want to say prisons don't reduce crime, but they do damage already vulnerable families. Communities of color are incarcerated in disproportionate numbers and are in 2020 murdered by police for the crime of breathing. Prison slave labor is not only further under, undercut any hope for a living wage, but its existence has stolen any hope for a job at all for many. Um, there's no money for public education but there's, and health care, but there's money for the prison industrial complex. In conclusion, the issue of police brutality and extrajudicial police-sponsored genocide cannot be separated from the systemic racism and economic injustice of what can only be called out as predatory capitalism. What is happening to communities of color is they are systematically criminalized. The petty offenses are just for breeding is directly parallel to the criminal workings of Hitler's Third Reich. As a Jew, I can say that. I know that my people were enslaved by the Reich and worked until they dropped. After they were no longer useful, they were murdered and their remains desecrated. But many Americans do not realize that the mechanism for Hitler's slavery and genocide machine was found here in the USA. The present Trump administration has defended police brutality and racism. Trump himself has routinely incited racists to violence and crafted an atmosphere where such behavior is not only openly accepted, but celebrated. Predatory, excuse me, predatory capitalism only lives by a single rule. There are no rules except don't get caught. Predatory capitalism relies on open, the open oppression of workers, like the Pinkertons who were previously deputized, the crack the skulls of union organizers fighting child labor and worker abuse. Our police work to suppress any movement against this record economic inequality. The defund movement aims to end this systemic oppression and injustice. We should be increasing funding for economically impoverished school districts and public health during a pandemic, not funding police brutality. And I hope that Mayor Lida Christian is listening because she needs this valuable lesson. And that's my report. Thank you so much, Janine. That's just staggering. And you're so right about the uh, uh, correspondence between 
the prison industrial complex here in the United States with prison labor and how slave labor was used in, uh, in Germany and in Eastern Europe uh, in World War II and, and before. Um, uh, I know that you've got some things planned for the future. I know you're working on a book. Right. We are looking forward to uh, much more uh, from Janine on, on justice. Uh, looks like perhaps environmental justice uh, extra yes. the new, uh, programming yeah, the in the new future. Show, yeah, the new show is going to um, have its debut in two weeks. After Fabulous. the Fourth of July holiday, so not not next week, but the week after, and uh, it intersects, you know, the it's, it's the environmental justice report with Janine Moloff, and um, you can't. It's all this intersects. It's none of it has been done by accident, and the kids in the streets that are protesting are spot on, uh, and again, the mainstream corporate media basically soft pedals what can only be called the crimes against humanity by the Trump administration. And it must stop. Right it on. Just must. Right on. Well, Janine, thank you so much. We will talk to you again next week and we look forward to the environmental justice report in two weeks. And I'm going <laughs> to sign off tonight with a, uh, with a track that I found uh, from Evan Greer, uh, who's a, a, uh, uh, an activist uh, and a musician and this beautiful piece I'll, I'll after the show is over I will stick this down in the show notes so that everyone can uh, uh, access this great song and uh, here we go and we'll see you again next week I'm a goldman to see your ass.
your ass. That's for sure. Thanks for listening, you guys. See you next week. Uh, DM me at nationalbrook.com or uh, nationalbrook on Twitter. You can reach out to me there. You can reach out to me on Facebook, and uh, we will see you again next week.